0: Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and what we are is basically a campus ministry for the convinced and unconvinced believers and non-believers. We put a lot of emphasis on being community and people-oriented and promoting a welcoming atmosphere of inclusivity and comfort. Uh, what this podcast is is a collection of our worship night sermons given by our campus minister, William Bondront. Um, so, without further ado, we really hope that y'all enjoy this talk. Um,
1: my name is William, I'm the campus minister here for RUF. Um, and again, if you're new, we promise this is abnormal and weird and strange um, for us to do this. So, um, that beautiful space inside there, that's where we normally are, but under uh, under air-conditioned conditions. So. Uh, But we're really glad that you came, and you stuck it out, and you're here with us. Um, All right, so this semester, we are working our way through the Old Testament book, Genesis. It's actually the very first book of the entire Bible, and really the whole point of doing that, and really the whole point of Genesis itself, is to lay this groundwork, this foundational layer for the Christian life. What's the world like? What are we like? What's God like? Those are the things that we're dealing with. And uh, last week, if you were with us, you remember we looked at uh, the first part of the story of Cain and Abel. Somewhat you know, familiar narrative maybe to even people that haven't spent a lot of time in church. And, uh, and so last week we looked at how the story of Cain and Abel forces us to think about this category that the Bible has called sin and what sin is that's this nature inside of us is this nature that we have. it is us and its whole purpose is to disconnect us from God, disconnect us from one another and actually destroy us. It wants to do us in. Um, okay so tonight as we think about the rest of the story, we'll read that in a second. Um, we're gonna think like what what does it look like to have a little bit of like glimpse of hope in that right and to see the glimpse of hope in the story we kind of have to let be the the dark backdrop be the bad news right the kind of culture that this you know a sin so sin controlled culture kind of creates for us I've heard um, used as the illustration before, um, if you've ever like been to a jeweler, oftentimes they'll have like the felt velvet backdrop will be black or some kind of like dark, dark color. Why? Because it's that with that dark backdrop that you're actually able to see the jewelry and the shimmer and the shine of the diamonds um, all the more clearly. And that's not unlike um, The way the gospel works, too. It's actually the bad news that helps us understand the good news. Okay, so without further ado, let's finish up the rest of Cain and Abel's story. This is Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel, and he was father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, the sister of Tubalcane was Naema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, "God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him." To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enoch. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray, um, Lord. You know, it is not beyond any of us here that this text is kind of bizarre It is ancient near eastern literature like, that obviously isn't something we spend a lot of time reading in our day to day life uh, Lord yet we know that in this ancient near eastern text um, it is through it that you are revealing yourself um, and so Lord would you help us to just unpack this to see what's true of you, what's true of us the lord that we would even see jesus as he says it's these the old testament scriptures that actually talk all about him and so we want to see jesus show him in his name we pray amen all right so for those of y'all that are fishermen um i love fly fishing you don't have to spend a lot of time around me to figure that out um there's a book that i picked up this summer called Trout Bum. It's just like a bunch of essays by a guy, a guy named John Gearock, and he's just a hilarious writer. Um, recommend it. But I wanted to read to you a passage where John, he relays the experience of hooking like a large trout. Not just any trout, but like one of those once in a lifetime kind of trouts, and then uh, and then losing it. Okay? So I just, I like this. Want to read it to you. Okay. So he writes, at the little jiggle in the leader, there was just a hair too intelligent looking to be nothing but current or a rod. You raise the rod, set the hook, and there's weight. And then there's movement. It's a fish. It's a big fish. Not wiggling, but boring. Shaking its head in puzzlement and aggravation, but not in fear. It's impressive. Almost lazily, the trout rises from the bottom into the faster current near the surface, rolls into the rift, and is off downstream. What you feel is more weight than fight, and the wings of panic begin to flutter around your throat. This is the once or twice a year, O S H I T fish. (laughs) You should have tried to catch a glimpse of him when he turned. The only glimpse you may get, but it all happened so fast. No, it didn't. It actually happened rather slowly, almost lazily, as you just pointed you're careful. Too careful? Not careful enough? The hook is a stout, heavy wire number 10, but the tippet is only a 5x, about four pound test. The rod is an eight and a half foot cane with plenty of backbone in the butt, but with a nicely sensitive tip, catalog talk, but true. The drag on the reel is set light. The line is leaving it smoothly. You drop the rod to half mast, give the fish his head, and are in fact doing everything right. It's hopeless. The trout is far downstream now, on the far side of the rift and the plunge, but the local topography makes it impossible for you to follow. The line is belly, no longer pointing at the fish. At some point, you are struck by the knowledge that the trout, that enormous trout, is no longer attached to you, and all your expensive tackle, though you missed, uh, though you missed the exact moment of separation, it's off. You reel in to find that he did not throw the hook, but broke you off fairly against the weight of the river. You get a mental snapshot of your fly hanging in the hook jaw of a heavy, what, a rainbow? More likely a brown. You'll never know. <laughs> Losing a fish like that is hard. Sure, you were going to release him anyway, but that's not the point. The plan was to be magnanimous and victory. You ask yourself, was it my fault? A typically analytical question. You can avoid it with poetry of, it's just nice to be out fishing, variety. Or you can soften it with the many levels of technical evasion. But there's finally only one answer. Of course it was your fault. Who else's fault would it be? Why do I read that? Because I'm a fly fishing nerd. Yes. I read that because it's hilarious to me just how powerful a reality guilt is. Right? His whole language, like, is it my fault? Did I do something wrong? And then finally, like, just all the condemnation coming down of him, like, of course it's my fault and like we're sitting here just talking about recreational for fun fly fishing and you still can't get away from this deep sense that like i am wrong something is wrong we are wrong um and i want to submit to you the reality that you and i like can't even do fun stuff without experiencing some form of like guilt or I'm wrong or bad is because the reality is is that the human race, all of us we are under the guilty verdict of God (laughs) but the just creator and ruler of the universe that actually when we come into this world our natural state is actually one of guilt and I think that just plays itself out in every single realm of human life Right? And see, that baked-in guilt, here's the problem with it. It warps our hearts. It warped Cain's heart for sure. Right? He took the guilt he experienced before God, and he let it sink its hooks into him, and it dragged them into just more and more and more evil. And we see in our passage, Cain's descendants, they haul off and they create a culture of guilt. And it just keeps going from bad to worse of what, you know, I love to call it colloquially, just a total dumpster fire. And so here's my question this evening, it's simple. What do you do with the guilt you feel? What do you do with the guilt you feel? All right, so I just want us to look at a few examples we have from the passage. What did they do with their guilt? Um, Well, look, let's look at Cain first. So he understood that he was guilty. He felt condemned that... God didn't have regard for His like self-righteous offering that He gave, and so He felt the guilt of that, and He responded by becoming furious, lashing out, hurting those around Him. Um, so this is what I like to call, like that that anarchy reaction to guilt, like the some people just want to watch the world burn version of guilt. Um, and uh, there's actually so from church history there is a african church father goes by the name of augustine of hippo and he wrote a book called the confessions I highly recommended um, awesome book kind of one of the greatest pieces of christian literature um, to this day but in it he talks about before he was a christian Um, he and a bunch of his friends went and stole uh, some fruit out of a fruit tree. And I love how he writes about it. So I'll just read to you uh, this and explain it a second. (coughs) He says, Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart. You had pity on it when it was at the bottom of the abyss. Now let my heart tell you what it was seeking there, in that I became evil for no reason. I had no motive for my wickedness except wickedness itself it was foul and i loved it i loved the self-destruction i loved my fall, not the object for which i had fallen but my fall itself my depraved soul leaped down from your firmament to ruin i was seeking not to gain anything by shameful means but shame for its own sake so in other words saying like why did me and my friends steal the apples were we hungry no like did we not have fruit of our own no we had plenty He just like jumped headlong because he's like, I I just already feel that something is wrong on the inside of me. And I just kind of want to lean into that for that thing's sake. Is that what you do with your guilt? Do you feel it and go like, I don't like the way this feels on the inside. It feels bad. So now I want to make other people feel bad too. And so I'll use my words maybe to cut them down. Maybe to their face, maybe more likely behind their back. Right? And there's like, you know, a lot more worse things um, than, than murder, right? But like, right, that's exactly what Cain did. He took his guilt. He took his shame. And he just unloaded it and aimed it right at his brother. But look, maybe for you, maybe it's not physical violence anymore. Maybe you just, like, relationally exclude people. Um, Maybe you withhold yourself, your friendship, your presence. And you do that in a way to hurt and to alienate people. Okay, but why why is that kind of behavior? Why is it actually poison for you? Um, Look, what was Cain's first realization that he makes? after killing his brother and after God confronts him. He goes, wait, hold on, God. Like If you send me out of your presence, like I kind of let that anarchy, do whatever you want to do thing out of Pandora's box. So if I'm not around you and I'm not around your protection, what's going to keep somebody from doing to me what I just did to my brother? And the answer the text gives is, well, God basically made a declaration: "Hey, everybody, don't do it." But we're not exactly seeing a pattern of people, you know, obeying God particularly well at this point in time. So it's kind of one of these like, good question, Cain. Good luck out there, bud. And so he steps into this world of fear. In other words, inevitability, a lifestyle of taking your guilt, your shame your pain, and then using that as ammunition or an excuse to lash out, stomp on other people, break the rules, etc. It leaves you deeply, deeply afraid, down to your core. Because you're afraid, essentially, that the chickens are going to come home to roost one day. And here's the thing, they do, they eventually do. Um, okay, so that's one way to handle guilt, the lashing out, anarchy way. What's another way? Um, I think there's some funny irony in the passage we just read. See, Cain was afraid that he unleashed (laughs) murderous anarchy on the world, but what his descendants ended up doing was actually way worse than anarchy. Instead of anarchy, they built a society. They built a culture they built a culture with rules and laws and norms and structures. And they enforce certain ideals with this society, this city they built, right? But again, they did so from a place of guilt. They did so from a stance of alienation from God, right? So they're just taking their own hands, like... I feel guilty, I feel condemnation, I know I'm not right with the God of the universe. So let me try to tamp that feeling down by doing stuff, right? By just like picking some stuff to do, picking some norms to have, and I'm just going to call it good, and we're just all going to go do that stuff we're calling good so that we don't have to feel so guilty anymore. But of course, at the end of the day, it just ends up being like a more sophisticated brutality than Cain himself came up with. Um, look, like so Layman, he has this braggadocious speech and we can gather a few things from it uh, pretty quickly. So one thing is we definitely get the sense that this society they had was not a very fun place to be a woman, right? It um, was not. Not sound like a particularly empowering environment. Um, it was a society built to maximize the experience of some at the expense of the rest. And then look this this speech slash song. Some people call this the song of Lamech. Um, it reveals that Lamech has taken lawmaking like he makes laws. And he's taken them into his own. And instead of enforcing this kind of equitable system of justice, he creates a society where the power class can legally murder people for the slightest of offenses. All right? Lamech, he's saying here in his speech, like, hear this. Hey, here in Enoch, I remember that was the name of the city. Here in Enoch, we are a law and order society. We don't mess around. You step out of line here and you will have the full Forced, of justice dropped on you. That's how we do things here. You insult somebody, boom, you're dead. But of course they lost any sense of an appropriate measure of justice. Why? Because that's just what happens when you build a society from a stance of guilt, from a place of guilt. Just warped hearts build warped societies. But here's the complicated thing about this, right? This was a deeply flawed and wicked society. And and there were a lot of objectively beautiful and good things that came out of it too, right? Why did I spend so much time reading all the whole passage? So I can show you, like, look, music, engineering, animal husbandry, metallurgy. Those are all things that people in this society did. And so there really are just things about this people and this life that they are living that we can point to. We can say is good and look if you ask the society hey what are y'all like are y'all good or y'all bad they would just look you straight in the eyes and say of course we're good we're good we're law-abiding people rich culture sciences we're good and they're guilty and their whole society is built out of that um, so this is a rather rather literary uh, illustration that I'm using today, but this one just that. So, Clary O'Connor, she's one of my favorite authors of all time, um, Southern writer uh, from rural Georgia, and uh, she has a story called Revelation. I'll just give you the the background is uh, the story starts in a doctor's office, like kind of 1950s, and there's this. Christian, really religious, I mean, you can almost kind of imagine the type, kind of like nose stuck in the air, better than everybody else, kind of Christian woman, waiting in the doctor's office, and there's like a host of different characters and tropes sitting in there, and just the whole time, she's like talking to different people, and you can kind of hear the commentary in her head, talking about all the different people in the room, and so she's making fun of like the white trash people, and she's like talking about, you know, derogatorily about ethnic minorities in the room and of course she's looking at the other like good civilized southern people um, that are around her kind of commiserating and making knowing looks about all these other people but it keeps turning back to this um, college-aged girl and you know, it's like she's just like reading a book and the more this woman talks mrs. Turpin the more she talks but angrier and angrier and angrier this college girl's face is starting to be, and then finally Miss Turpin she just like again makes some kind of real snide, snooty, but like still kind of trying to purport herself as the good the good person in the room, and then all of a sudden the book just said and like the book like the girl the college girl holding the textbook textbook just hurls across the room, hits Miss Turpin in the face, and the college girl in just like a rage, she's like on top of her, like choking her to death, and like the room erupts, and they pull the girl off of her, and just as they're pulling this college girl um, off Miss Turpin, she just yells at her, go back to hell where you came from, you old war hog. Okay, so Miss Turpin, she works on a pickpocket. And so like later that day she's just like she's still just hurt she's still just rattling around in her head like how dare you god like god how dare you let just this horrid little child call me a hog so she's literally standing there in front of the pig pen at her farm and she's just like in this verbal battle with God because she's going I'm good I'm objectively good I never miss church I'm always kind to people I do all these things like look at my goodness and uh, I'll start reading from there she says why me she rumbled it's no trash around here black or white that I haven't given to and break my back to the bone every day working and do for the church she appeared to be the right-sized woman to command the arena before her. How am I a hog, she demanded. Exactly how am I like them? She jabbed the stream of water at the show. <coughs> there was plenty of trash there. It didn't have to be me. If you like trash better, she's talking to God. If you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then, she railed. You could have made me trash. But trash is what you wanted. Why didn't you make me trash? She shook her fist with the hose in it, and a watery snake appeared momentarily in the air. I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, she growled, lounge about the sidewalks all day, drinking root beer, dip snuff, and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could just be nasty. It keeps going. Until the sun slipped finally behind the tree line. Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them, as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge at last she lifted her head there was only a purple streak in the sky cutting through a field of crimson and bleeding like an extension of the highway into the descending dust she raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture hieratic and profound a visionary light settled in her eyes she saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire upon it a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven there were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of black people in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs, and bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and a God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, Accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior, they alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned. Yeah. I love that. Hope y'all. It is so easy, whether we're going to try to do it through like, we just want to see it a world-run kind of way or actually being like people of the rules and, like we are the good people that either way that can be only coming from a place a gift of acting on a world um, you know, it was interesting to me that at the end of our story in Genesis, that it that it ends all of a sudden like right, all this like, man, the dumpster fire of a, of a society, all the wickedness of it. That it ends with a contingency of people that actually do the right thing with their guilt. Right? That they take it before God Himself. Right? They call upon the Lord. What are they calling upon the Lord for? they're calling upon the Lord to have a different word spoken over them other than guilty Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 24 says this it says and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood This speaks a better word than the blood of Abel do you know that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word over you than guilty, it says clean. It says beloved. It says son. It says precious. It says not guilty. Hey, y'all, like, what if we lived out of that? Like, what if we could just, like, step outside of the realm of, like, I have to prove myself or if I'm not the funniest person in the room right now, if I'm not the smartest person in the room, I'm not the most attractive person in the room, then I feel like something is foundationally wrong, right? Like, what if we could step away from that, leave that in the dust, and, like, just be able to look across the room at each other and be okay? And to know that we're okay. Not because there's, like, objectively, like, because I became smarter or because I became the most good looking person in the room, but because of the good word that Jesus' blood. Into hey, what if we just live out of that? Consider that invitation. Let's pray, Lord. Um, we just thank you that we don't have to build a culture or our lives or a society out of guilt. And at the same time, we live—we live on a college campus, and there are just all kinds of behaviors. <laughs> that are obviously bad, all kinds of behaviors that seem pretty good, that seem like they have all the right motives connected to them, and yet the heart that underlies it is one of just deep, deep, deep insecurity. And those kinds of hearts hurt people. And Lord, those kinds of hearts are in this room. So Lord, would you help us bring our guilt that we feel to the right place. to your throne of grace where we, where everybody else can find forgiveness, unforgiveness, unforgiveness, can find dignity and honor bestowed. And we can take a deep breath and it can be okay that we're not okay. Lord, would you help us to know that it's okay that we're not okay because Jesus speaks a better word over us. In name
0: we pray. amen. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If y'all are interested in joining us for a future worship night, we would absolutely love to see y'all at All Face Chapel uh, on the north side of campus, across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events that we might be putting on throughout the semester. Uh, thank y'all so much for listening and we hope to see y'all around sometime.